Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Monday, March 13th reading of the Christian Science Monitor. My name's Beth Tavino. Iran and Saudi Arabia reestablish ties in dialing down of tensions. After years of tensions, Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies in an effort to support regional stability. China brokered the deal amid perceptions the U.S. is slowly withdrawing from the Middle East. This article was written by John Gambrell, who's with the Associated Press. From Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed Friday to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after seven years of tensions between the Mideast rivals. The major diplomatic breakthrough negotiated with China lowers the chance of armed conflict between the nations, both directly and in proxy conflicts around the region. The deal, struck in Beijing last week amid its ceremonial National People's Congress, represents a major diplomatic victory for the Chinese as Gulf Arab states perceive the United States slowly withdrawing from the wider Middle East. It also comes as diplomats have been trying to end a years-long war in Yemen, a conflict in which both Iran and Saudi Arabia are deeply entrenched. The two countries released a joint communique on the deal with China, which brokered the agreement. Chinese state media did not immediately report the agreement. Iranian state media posted images and video it described as being taken in China of the meeting. It showed Ali Shamkhani, the secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, with Saudi National Security Advisor Mossad bin Mohammed al-Aiban and Wang Yi, China's most senior diplomat. After implementing of the decision, the foreign ministers of the both nations will meet to prepare for exchange of ambassadors, Iranian state television said. It added that the talks had been held over four days. The joint statement calls for the reestablishing of ties and the reopening of embassies to happen within a maximum period of two months. In the footage aired by Iranian media, Mr. Wang could be heard offering wholehearted congratulations on the two countries' wisdom. Both sides have displayed sincerity, he said. China fully supports this agreement. China, which recently hosted Iran's hardline President Ibrahim Raisi, is also a top purchaser of Saudi oil. President Xi Jinping just awarded a third five-year term as president earlier on Friday, visited Riyadh in December to attend meetings with oil-rich Gulf Arab nations crucial to China's energy supplies. Iran's state-run IRNA news agency quoted Mr. Shamkhani as calling the talks clear, transparent, comprehensive, and constructive. Removing misunderstandings and the future-oriented views and relations between Tehran and Riyadh will definitely lead to improving regional stability and security, as well as increasing cooperation among Persian Gulf nations and the world of Islam for managing current challenges, Mr. Samkhani was quoted as saying. 
Shortly after the Iranian announcement, Saudi state media began publishing the same statement. Tensions have been high between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The kingdom broke off ties with Iran in 2016 after protesters invaded Saudi diplomatic posts there. Saudi Arabia had executed a prominent Shiite cleric days earlier, triggering the demonstrations. The execution came as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, then a deputy, began his rise to power. The son of King Salman, Prince Mohammed, at one point compared Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei to Nazi Germany's Adolf Hitler and also threatened to strike Iran. In the years since, tensions have risen dramatically across the Middle East since the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from Iran's nuclear deal with world powers in 2018. Iran has been blamed for a series of attacks in the time since, including one that targeted the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil industry in 2019, temporarily halving the kingdom's crude production. Though Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels initially claimed the attack, Western nations and experts have blamed the attack on Tehran. Tehran has long denied launching the attack. It has also denied carrying out other assaults later attributed to the Islamic Republic. Christian Ulrichsen, a research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, who has long studied the region, said Saudi Arabia reaching the deal with Iran came after the United Arab Emirates reached a similar understanding with Tehran. The dialing down of tensions and de-escalation has been underway for three years, and this was triggered by Saudi acknowledgement in their view that, without unconditional U.S. backing, they were unable to project power vis-a-vis Iran and the rest of the region, he said. Prince Mohammed, now focused on massive construction projects in his own country, likely wants to finally pull out of the Yemen war as well, Mr. Ulrichsen added. Instability could do a lot of damage to his plans, he said. The Houthis seized Yemen's capital, Sana'a, in September 2014 and forced the internationally recognized government into exile in Saudi Arabia. A Saudi-led coalition armed with U.S. weaponry and intelligence entered the war on the side of Yemen's exiled government in March 2015. Years of inconclusive fighting has created a humanitarian disaster and pushed the Arab world's poorest nation to the brink of famine. A six-month ceasefire in Yemen's war, the longest of the conflict, expired in October despite diplomatic efforts to renew it. That led to fears the war could again escalate. More than 150,000 people have been killed in Yemen during the fighting, including over 14,500 civilians. In recent months, negotiations have been ongoing, including in Oman, a longtime interlocutor between Iran and the U.S. Some have hoped for an agreement ahead of the Holy Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, which will begin later in March. Iran and Saudi Arabia have held off-and-on talks in recent years, but it wasn't immediately clear if Yemen was the impetus for this new detente. The U.S. Navy and its allies have seized a number of weapons shipments recently they describe as coming from Iran headed to Yemen. 
Iran denies arming the Houthis despite weapons seized mirroring others seen on the battlefield in the rebels' hands. A United Nations arms embargo bars nations from sending weapons to the Houthis. It remains unclear, however, what this means for America. Though long viewed as guaranteeing Mideast energy security, regional leaders have grown increasingly wary of Washington's intentions after its chaotic 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan. The U.S. State Department did not immediately respond to a request for comment over the announced deal. Power for Life Xi Jinping secures third term as China's president. Xi Jinping has secured a third five-year term as China's president, cementing the idea he might stay in power for life. Mr. Jinping has already sidelined challengers, promoted his own loyalists, and removed the two-term limit from the Chinese constitution. This article is written by the AP staff, that's the Associated Press, from Beijing, Chinese leader Xi Jinping was awarded a third five-year term as the nation's president Friday, putting him on track to stay in power for life at a time of severe economic challenges and rising tensions with the U.S. and others. The endorsement of Xi's appointment by the Ceremonial National People's Congress, the NPC, was a foregone conclusion for a leader who has sidelined political rivals and filled the top ranks of the ruling Communist Party with his supporters since taking power in 2012. The vote for Mr. Xi was 2,952 to zero by the NPC, members of which are appointed by the ruling party. Mr. Xi had himself named to a third five-year term as party general secretary in October, breaking with the tradition under which Chinese leader handed over power once a decade. A two-term limit on the figurehead presidency was deleted from the Chinese constitution earlier, prompting suggestions he might stay in power for life. There was no indication that members of the National People's Congress had any option other than to endorse Mr. Xi and other officials picked by the Communist Party for other posts. When Mr. Xi was named to his first term as president in 2013, NPC members received a ballot with only his name on it and dropped it unchanged into a box. On Friday, reporters were kept at a distance and couldn't see the four ballots that each delegate deposited into boxes placed around the vast auditorium of the Great Hall of the People. Mr. Xi was also unanimously named head of the Central Military Commission that commands the party's military wing, the two-million-member People's Liberation Army, an appointment that has been automatic for the party leader for three decades. In other voting, the party's third-ranking official, Chao Leiji, was named head of the National People's Congress. The vast majority of the body's legislative work is headed by its standing committee, which meets year-round. Mr. Chao, a holdover from the previous party Politburo standing committee, the apex of political power in China headed by Mr. Xi, won Mr. Xi's trust as head of the party's anti-corruption watchdog, the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, pursuing an anti-graft campaign that has frozen all potential opposition to Mr. Xi. Former Shanghai party boss and member of the last Polit Standing Committee, Han Cheng, was named to the largely ceremonial post of state vice president. 
Mr. Xi, Mr. Chao, and Mr. Han then took the oath of office with one hand on a copy of the Chinese Constitution. The sessions also swore in 14 Congress vice chairpersons. Wang Huning, a holdover from the last Politburo Standing Committee, was later named head of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, the NPC's advisory body, that, in coordination with the party's United Front Department, works to build Mr. Xi's influence and image abroad. Mr. Wang has been a top advisor to three Chinese leaders and has authored books critiquing Western politics and society. Mr. Xi's new term and the appointment of loyalists to top posts underscores his near-total monopoly on Chinese political power, eliminating any potential opposition to his hyper-nationalistic agenda of building China into the top political, military, and economic rival to the U.S. and the chief authoritarian challenge to the Washington-led democratic world order. While six others serve with him on the Politburo Standing Committee, all have long-standing ties to Mr. Xi and can be counted on to see to his will on issues from party discipline to economic management. The Standing Committee has only men, and the 24-member Politburo, which has had only four female members since the 1990s, also has no women after the departure of Vice President Sun Chunlan. Second-ranked Li Kang is widely expected to take over as premier, nominally in charge of the cabinet and caretaker of the economy. Mr. Li is best known for ruthlessly enforcing a brutal zero-COVID lockdown on Shanghai last spring as party boss of the Chinese financial hub, proving his loyalty to Mr. Xi in the face of complaints from residents over their lack of access to food, medical care, and basic services. Former head of the manufacturing powerhouse of Guangdong province, 7th-ranked Li Shi, has all already been appointed to replace Mr. Chow as head of the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection. The Congress is also expected to pass measures intensifying party control over national-level government organs as part of Mr. Xi's campaign of centralizing power under the party. At the opening of the annual Congress session on Sunday, outgoing Premier Li Keqiang announced plans for a consumer-led revival of the struggling economy, setting this year's target, growth target, at around 5%. Last year's growth in the world's second-largest economy fell to 3%, the second-weakest level since at least the 1970s. Separately, the Ministry of Finance announced a 7.2% budget increase in the defense budget to $224 billion, marking a slight increase over 2022. China's military spending is the world's second highest after the United States. In the days then, Mr. since then, Mr. Xi and his new foreign minister, Qin Gong, have set a highly combative tone for relations with the U.S., Amid tensions over trade, technology, Taiwan, human rights, and Beijing's refusal to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On Tuesday, Mr. Kin warned in unusually stark terms about the possibility of U.S. China frictions leading to something direr. More dire, direr. If the United States does not hit the brake but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing 
and there surely will be conflict and confrontation, Mr. Kinn said in his first news conference since taking up his post last year. That echoed comments at a small group meeting of delegates from Mr. Xi on Monday, in which he said that, quote, Western countries led by the United States have implemented all-round containment, encirclement, and suppression of China, which has brought unprecedented grave challenges to our nation's development, end quote. Mr. Xi followed up on Wednesday by calling for, quote, more quickly elevating the armed forces to world-class standards. China must maximize its national strategic capabilities in a bid to systematically upgrade the country's overall strength to cope with strategic risks, safeguard strategic interests, and realize strategic objectives, Mr. Xi was quoted as saying to a meeting of delegates by the official Xinhua News Agency. Asked about China's future foreign relations under Mr. Xi, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning struck a relatively mild tone. Beijing maintains a, quote, independent foreign policy of peace and will continue to view and develop China-U.S. relations in accordance with the principles of peaceful coexistence, mutual respect, and win-win cooperation, Ms. Mao said at a daily briefing. We hope the U.S. side can also meet us halfway and push China-U.S. relations back on the track of sound and stable development, she said. Russian President Vladimir Putin, with whom Mr. Xi has formed close ties, issued his congratulations, saying Xi's new term is, quote, an acknowledgement of your achievements as the head of state, as well as wide support of your policy focused on China's socioeconomic development and protection of its national interests on the global stage. Under Mr. Xi, China and Russia announced a no-limits relationship, and China has pointedly refused to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while echoing Moscow's claim that the U.S. and NATO were to blame for provoking the Kremlin. Beijing has also blasted sanctions imposed on Russia after it invaded Ukraine, while Russia has staunchly supported China amid tensions with the U.S. over Taiwan. We will continue to coordinate our joint work related to the most important issues on the regional and international agenda, Mr. Putin said, according to the Kremlin. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, head of the ruling Workers' Party, also sent congratulations, saying, quote, the two parties and the two countries are defending and advancing socialism, the common cause, while supporting and closely cooperating with each other, end quote. China is the impoverished and isolated North's most important political ally and a source of food and fuel aid. Hamburg rocked by shooting at Jehovah's Witnesses' congregation. A gunman killed six people at his Jehovah's Witnesses congregation in Hamburg, Germany, before taking his own life. An anonymous tip to the police stated that the motive was likely to be anger toward religious groups. This article was co-written by Pietro de Cristofaro and Gere Molson, both with the Associated Press. From Hamburg, Germany. A gunman stormed a service at his former Jehovah's Witnesses congregation in Hamburg, killing six people before taking his own life after police arrived, authorities in the German port city said Friday. 
Police gave no motive for Thursday night's attack, but they acknowledged recently receiving an anonymous tip that claimed the man showed anger toward religious groups and might be psychologically unfit to own a gun. Eight people were wounded, including a woman who was 28 weeks pregnant and lost the baby. Chancellor Olaf Scholz said the death toll could rise. Officers apparently reached the hall, a boxy building next to an auto repair shop a few miles from downtown, while the attack was ongoing, and heard one more shot after they they arrived, according to witnesses and authorities. They did not fire their weapons, but officials said their intervention likely prevented further loss of life. Mr. Schultz, a former Hamburg mayor, lamented the terrible incident in my home city. Germany's gun laws are more restrictive than those in the United States, but permissive compared with some other European neighbors, and shootings are not unheard of. Last year, a man opened fire in a packed lecture at Heidelberg University, killing one person and wounding three others before killing himself. In January 2020, a man shot dead six people, including his parents, in southwestern Germany, while a month later a shooter who posted a racist rant online killed nine people near Frankfurt. In the most recent shooting involving a site of worship, a far-right extremist attempted to force his way into a synagogue in Hal on Yom Kippur, Judaism's holiest day, in October 2019. After failing to gain entry, he shot two people to death nearby. The German government announced plans last year to crack down on gun ownership by suspected extremists and to tighten background checks. Currently, anyone wanting to acquire a firearm must show that they are suited to do so, including by proving that they require a gun. Reasons can include being part of a sports shooting club or being a hunter. We are speechless in view of this violence, Mr. Schultz said at an event in Munich. We are mourning those whose lives were taken so brutally. All of the victims were German citizens, apart from two wounded women, one with Ugandan citizenship and one with Ukrainian. The official said the gunman was a German national identified only as Philip F., in line with the country's privacy rules. Police said the suspect had left the congregation voluntarily, but apparently not on good terms, about a year and a half ago. The man legally owned a semi-automatic Heckler & Koch pistol P-30 handgun, according to police. He fired more than 100 shots during the attack, and the head of the Hamburg prosecutor's office, Ralph Peter Anders, said hundreds more rounds were found in the man's apartment. Hamburg Police Chief Ralph Martin Meyer said the man was visited by police after they received an anonymous tip in January, claiming he bore particular anger toward religious believers, in particular toward Jehovah's Witnesses and his former employer. Officers said the man was cooperative and found no grounds to take away his weapon, according to Mr. Meyer. The bottom line is that an anonymous tip in which someone says they're worried a person might have a psychological illness isn't in itself a basis for such measures, he said. On Friday morning, forensic investigators in protective white suits could be seen outside the Jehovah's Witnesses' Kingdom Hall. As a light snow fell, officers placed yellow cones on the ground and windowsills to mark evidence.
Humberg's top security official said a special operations unit that happened to be near the hall arrived just minutes after receiving the first emergency call at 9.04 p.m. The officers were able to separate the gunmen from the congregation. We can assume that they saved many people's lives this way, Hamburg State Interior Minister Andy Grote told reporters. Upon arrival, officers found people with apparent gunshot wounds on the ground floor and then heard a shot from an upper floor where they found a fatally wounded person who may have been the shoot- a shooter, according to police spokesman Holger Verin. They did not fire their weapons. Student Laura Bauck, who lives nearby, said there were around four periods of shooting, German news agency DPA reported. There were always several shots in these periods, she said. Ms. Bauck said she looked out her window and saw a person running from the ground floor to the second floor of the Jehovah's Witnesses Hall. Gregor Mibach, who lives within sight of the building, heard shots and filmed a figure entering the building through a window. In his footage, shots can then be heard from inside. The figure later apparently emerges from the hall, is seen in the courtyard, and then fires more shots through a first-floor window before the lights in the room go out. Mr. Mibach told German television news agency Nonstop News that he heard at least 25 shots. After police arrived, one last shot followed, he said. His mother, Dort Maybach, said she was shocked by the shooting. It's really 54 yards from our house, and many people died. This is still incomprehensible. We still haven't quite come to terms with it. Jehovah's Witnesses are part of an international church founded in the U.S. in the 19th century and headquartered in Warwick, New York. It claims a worldwide membership of about 8.7 million with about 170,000 in Germany. Members are known for their evangelistic efforts, which include knocking on doors and distributing literature in public squares. The denomination's practices include a refusal to bear arms, receive blood transfusions, salute a national flag, or participate in secular government. David Simonian, a U.S.-based spokesman for Jehovah's Witnesses, said in an emailed statement early Friday that members worldwide grieve for the victims of this traumatic event. The congregation elders in the local area are providing pastoral care for those affected by the event, he wrote. A new rich and strong China should aim for global role, says Xi. Following talks that resulted in an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran to reopen diplomacy, Xi Jinping called for China to have a more significant role in global affairs. He also emphasized support for private enterprises and job creation. This article was written by Joe McDonald with the Associated Press from Beijing. Xi Jinping called Monday for China to play a bigger role in managing global affairs after Beijing scored a diplomatic coup as the host of talks that produced an agreement by Saudi Arabia and Iran to reopen diplomatic relations. Mr. Xi gave no details of the ruling Communist Party's plans in a speech to China's ceremonial legislature. But Beijing has been increasingly assertive since he took power in 2012 and called for changes in the International Monetary Fund and other entities it says fail to reflect the desires of developing countries. 
China should actively participate in the reform and construction of the global governance system and promote global security initiatives, said Mr. Xi, the country's most powerful leader in decades. That will add positive energy to world peace and development, Mr. Xi said. On Friday, Mr. Xi was named to another term in the ceremonial presidency after breaking with tradition in October and awarding himself a third five-year term as general secretary of the ruling party, putting himself on track to become leader for life. The National People's Congress on Sunday cemented Mr. Xi's dominance by endorsing the appointment of his loyalists as premier and other government leaders in a -a once-a-decade change. Mr. Xi has sidelined potential rivals and loaded the top ranks of the ruling party with his supporters. The new premier, Li King, tried Monday to reassure entrepreneurs, but gave no details of possible plans to improve conditions after Mr. Xi's government spent the past decade building up state companies that control banking, energy, steel, telecoms, and other industries. Mr. Li's comments echoed promises by other Chinese leaders over the past six months to support entrepreneurs who generate jobs and wealth. They have vowed to simplify regulations and taxes, but have given no indication they plan to rein in state companies that entrepreneurs complain drain away their profits. The ruling party will treat enterprises of all types of ownership equally and support the development and growth of private enterprises, Mr. Lee said. Our leading cadres at all levels must sincerely care about and serve private enterprises, he said. Chinese officials earlier indicated anti-monopoly and data security crackdowns that knocked tens of billions of dollars off the stock market value of e-commerce giant Alibaba Group and other tech companies were ending. But entrepreneurs were rattled anew in February when a star banker who played a leading role in tech deals disappeared. Theofan's company said he was cooperating in an investigation, but gave no details. Mr. Li said Beijing will make a priority of job creation as it tries to revive economic growth that sank to 3% last year, the second lowest level in decades. This year's official growth target is, quote, around 5%. The premier expressed confidence China can cope as its workforce shrinks. The number of potential workers aged 15 to 59 has fallen by more than 5% from its 2011 peak, an unusually abrupt decline for a middle-income country. Mr. Lee said that while China is losing its demographic dividend of young workers, Better education means it is gaining a talent dividend. He said some 15 million people still enter the workforce every year. Abundant human resources is still China's outstanding advantage, he said. Abroad, Beijing also has built on China's growing heft as the second largest economy to promote trade and construction initiatives that Washington, Tokyo, Moscow, and New Delhi worry will expand its strategic influence at their expanse. Those include the multi-billion dollar Belt and Road Initiative to construct ports, railways, and other trade-related infrastructure across an arc of countries from the South Pacific through Asia 
to Africa and Europe. China also is promoting trade and security initiatives. A global security initiative issued in February said China is ready to conduct bilateral and multilateral security cooperation with all countries. It offered to help African countries resolve disputes and to set up a new security framework in the Middle East. Also last month, Beijing called for a ceasefire in Russia's war against Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed Chinese involvement, but said success would require action in addition to words. Beijing Beijing has refused to criticize President Vladimir Putin's attack on Ukraine and has accused Western governments of provoking the invasion. Mr. Xi's government rattled the United States and Australia in early 2022 when it signed an agreement with the Solomon Islands that would allow Chinese Navy ships and security forces to be stationed in the South Pacific nation. The foreign minister, Ken Gang, warned Washington last week of possible conflict and confrontation if the U.S. doesn't change course in relations that have been strained by conflicts over Taiwan, human rights, Hong Kong, security, and technology. Mr. Xi called Monday for faster technology development and more self-reliance in a speech loaded with nationalistic terms. He referred eight times to national rejuvenation or restoring China to its rightful place as an economic, cultural, and political leader. He said that before the ruling party took power in 1949, China was reduced to a semi-colonial, semi-feudal country, subject to bullying by foreign countries. We have finally washed away the national humiliation and Chinese people are the master of their own destiny, Mr. Xi said. The Chinese nation has stood up, become rich, and is becoming strong. Mr. Xi also called for the country to unswervingly achieve the goal of national reunification, a reference to Beijing's claim that Taiwan, the self-ruled island democracy, is part of its territory and is obliged to unite with China by force, if necessary. The president of Micronesia, a group of islands east of the Philippines, in a letter dated March 9th and obtained by the Associated Press, accused China of, quote, political warfare. David Pansuelo said Beijing used spying and bribes in an effort to ensure Micronesia would side with China or stay neutral in a possible conflict with Taiwan. The Chinese foreign ministry denied the allegations. Silicon Valley Bank collapses. Governments swift to protect deposits. The U.S. and U.K. governments are taking massive steps to avoid a financial crisis after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Regulators have failed to find a buyer for the $200 billion failed bank, yet assured depositors their money is still accessible. This article is co-written by Ken Sweet, Christopher Rugver, Chris Mergian, and Kathy Buswitz, all with the Associated Press from New York. Governments in the United States and Britain are taking extraordinary steps to prevent a potential banking crisis after the failure of California-based Silicon Valley Bank prompted fears of a broader upheaval. 
U.S. regulators worked through the weekend to find a buyer for the bank, which had more than $200 billion in assets and catered to tech startups, venture capitalist firms, and well-paid technology workers. While those efforts appear to have failed, officials assured all of the bank's customers that they would be able to access their money on Monday. President Joe Biden on Monday told Americans the nation's financial systems were safe, seeking to project calm following the swift and stunning collapse of two banks that prompted fears of a broader upheaval. Your deposits will be there when you need them, he said. The president, speaking from the White House shortly before a trip to the West Coast, said he'd seek to hold those responsible accountable and pressed for better oversight and regulation of larger banks. And he promised no losses would be borne by taxpayers. We must get the full accounting of what happened, he said. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. The assurances came as part of an expansive emergency lending program intended to prevent a wave of bank runs that would threaten the stability of the banking system and the economy as a whole. Meanwhile, the Bank of England and the UK Treasury said early Monday that they had facilitated the sale of the bank's London-based subsidiary to HSBC, Europe's biggest bank, ensuring the security of $8.1 billion of deposits. Regulators in the U.S. rushed to close Silicon Valley Bank on Friday when it experienced a traditional bank run where depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. It is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history behind only the 2008 failure of Washington Mutual. In a sign of how fast the financial bleeding was occurring, regulators announced that New York-based Signature Bank had also failed and was being seized on Sunday. At more than $110 billion in assets, Signature Bank is the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. Another beleaguered bank, First Republic Bank, announced Sunday that it had bolstered its financial health by gaining access to funding from the Fed and J.P. Morgan Chase. The developments left markets jittery as trading began Monday. The Asian and European markets fell, but not dramatically, and U.S. futures were down. In an effort to shore up confidence in the banking system, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation said Sunday that all Silicon Valley Bank clients would be protected and able to access their money. This step will ensure that the U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth, the agency said in a joint statement. Under the plan, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including those whose holdings exceed the $250,000 insurance limit, will be able to access their money on Monday. The UK also moved quickly, working throughout the weekend to arrange the sale of Silicon Valley Bank UK Limited, the California bank's British arm, for the nominal sum of one pound. While the bank is small, with less than 0.2% of UK bank deposits, according to central bank statistics, it had a large role in financing technology and biotech startups that the British government is counting on to fuel economic growth.
Jeremy Hunt, the UK government's treasury chief, said that some of the country's leading tech companies could have been wiped out. When you have very young companies, very promising companies, they're also fragile, Mr. Hunt told reporters, explaining why authorities moved so quickly. They need to pay their staff, and they were worried that as of 8 a.m. this morning, they might literally not be able to access their bank account. He stressed that there was never a systemic risk to the U.K.'s banking system. In the U.S., officials characterized their lending program as akin to what central banks have done for decades. Lend freely to the banking system so that customers would be confident that they could access their accounts whenever needed. That will allow banks that need to raise cash to pay depositors to borrow that money from the Fed, rather than having to sell treasuries and other securities to raise it. Silicon Valley Bank began its slide into insolvency when it was forced to dump some of its treasuries at a loss to fund its customers' withdrawals. Under the Fed's new program, banks can post those securities as collateral and borrow from the emergency facility. The Treasury has set aside $25 billion to offset any losses incurred. Fed officials said, however, that they do not expect to have to use any of that money given that the securities posted as collateral have a very low risk of default. Though Sunday's steps mark the most extensive government intervention in the banking system since the 2008 financial crisis, the actions are relatively limited compared with what was done 15 years ago. The two failed banks themselves have not been rescued, and taxpayer money has not been provided to them. Some prominent Silicon Valley executives feared that if Washington didn't rescue the failed bank, customers would make runs on other financial institutions in the coming days. Stock prices plunged over the last few days at other banks that cater to technology companies, including First Republic and PacWest Bank. Among the bank's customers is a range of companies from California's wine industry where many wineries rely on Silicon Valley Bank for loans and technology startups devoted to combating climate change. Tiffany Dufu, founder and CEO of The Crew, a New York-based career coaching platform and community for women, posted a video Sunday on LinkedIn from an airport bathroom saying the banking crisis was testing her resiliency. Given that her money was tied up at Silicon Valley Bank, She had to pay her employees out of her personal bank account. With two teenagers to support who will be heading to college, she said she was relieved to hear that the government's intent is to make depositors whole. Small businesses and early-stage startups don't have a lot of access to leverage in a situation like this, and we're often in a very vulnerable position, particularly when we have to fight so hard to get the wires into your bank to begin with, particularly for me as a black female founder, Ms. Dufu said. Bakhmut battle lays bare high stakes for both sides in Ukraine war. This article was written by Dominique Soguel, a special correspondent for the Monitor, from Chazivyar, Ukraine. Leaning against a low wall in the shadow of a building large enough to provide cover from Russian shellfire, Michaela sips his tea with calm determination as he and fellow members of his unit await evacuation. 
For weeks, they have been defending Bakhmut against an intense Russian onslaught in a battle that has come to symbolize the savagery of the war in Ukraine. Covered in mud and visibly exhausted, none of the men flinch or take cover when a mortar lands uncomfortably close. The fierce battle has subjected nearby towns such as Chazov Yar, a few miles from the Bakhmut front line, to a constant barrage of tank shells, mortar rounds, and thundering grad rockets. We are holding on to the city, but at what price, wonders Mikhailo, a member of the Ukrainian Army's 77th Brigade who shared only his first name. The losses are huge. If we keep the city, who will walk in it? Just dogs? The fighting has been hard all along, says Sergei, a soldier with honey-colored eyes brimming with tears. The men are in shock. One of their comrades was killed hours earlier in Bakhmut the latest casualty in a battle that has been as long as it has been brutal, leaving the town almost completely destroyed after 10 months of fighting. The soldiers know they've been risking their lives to hold positions of questionable strategic value. They find courage by channeling their anger against Russia over fallen comrades and atrocities committed in Ukraine, as well as the primal instinct to defend their homes and families. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, like the Russian army, has assigned great symbolic meaning to Bakhmut, making it a potential morale game-changer for both camps. Moscow covets full control of the industrial, coal-rich region known as Donbass in eastern Ukraine. That part of the country has been plunged into conflict since 2014, when Russian-backed separatists annexed large swaths of Ukrainian territory. Russian forces have taken over almost all of Luhansk since the full-scale invasion in 2022 and have gained new ground in Donetsk. Russian forces, reportedly largely made up of fighters belonging to the mercenary Wagner group, are closing in on Bakhmut, and the town has appeared on the verge of falling under complete Russian control for several days. The Ukrainian government fears such an outcome would open the road to larger cities, such as Kramatorsk and Slovyansk. That concern is reflected in newly reinforced checkpoints on inner-city roads west of Bakhmut and in the work of mechanical diggers on nearby hilltops creating new defensive positions. The Washington-based Institute for the Study of War, in a report Wednesday, estimated that Russian forces controlled about half of Bakhmut, but doubted whether the town's eventual fall would lead to a rapid advance by Russian forces. Several miles further from Bakhmut, the war has turned a small gas station into a bustling hub for Ukrainian and foreign fighters, rotating in and out of combat along the extensive front line. Its forecourt is packed with military vehicles refueling, its small shop crowded with soldiers stocking up on energy drinks and fast food. A band of young soldiers rush to swallow their hot dogs before jumping back into their vehicle to return to Bakhmut. Clenched jaws replace ready smiles as they slip back into body armor and helmets. In the last 24 hours, our position was attacked at least 10 times, says Lieutenant Yuri Andriyashenko, who once worked as a massage therapist. 
Russians got as close to us as 30 meters. I've never seen so many people walking straight into the bullets, willing to die like that. About 20 at a time. Nothing prepared me to see such sights. He admits to being frightened, but is careful not to let that show. The stakes are too high. Russian occupation would be worse than death, he says. But still, the act of killing troubles him. It is morally hard to point a gun at a person, to kill a person, he says. I am doing that every day, and that's hard to do, even when I know that they want to kill me. Offering solace to men facing such agonizing choices is the Reverend Ole Maxmet, who ushers all who stop at the filling station toward a table set with soup, cubes of pork fat, a Ukrainian favorite, and sweet pastries. Many people bring food, but it is also important to bring food for the soul, says the chaplain, who used to work, who told services in prisons and now does so wherever he can on the front line, in trenches, in basements, and even at gas stations. For him, the war in Ukraine is a great battle between good and evil. The images of children shot at point-blank range in Bucha, a small town outside Kiev, still haunt him. It is very important to have a strong spirit to continue fighting, he says. The pain and sacrifice of the front line made itself felt in the capital Kiev on Friday as mourners buried a nationally famous military commander, one of the youngest to be awarded the Hero of Ukraine Medal, who was killed near Bakhmut on Tuesday. His bravery was captured in a final frontline image of him using a bucket of water to battle the flames of an ammunition-filled tank set ablaze by a Russian shell. Thousands showed up to pay their respects to Lieutenant Dmitryo Kotsiobelo, codenamed Da Vinci. Among them was young mother Alisa Ryansanseva, trying to keep track of her toddler Ivan in the crowd and shedding tears for the sacrifice of this fallen soldier. We feel enormous grief and pain because there are thousands like da Vinci, she said. We are working on having another child because so many men and women are dying in this war. Neither Ukrainian nor Russian officials publish casualty figures, but in Bakhmut they are appalling. In the three days before Lieutenant Andriachenko set off for his new Bakhmut posting, he says, half of the 700 men in his battalion were either killed or wounded. It is hard for foot soldiers like him to decipher the strategic thinking of their superiors. We are holding on to Bakhmut, but we are paying a high price, he says. He summons the drive to fight on, he says, by thinking of the devastation the towns that have come under Russian control suffered. Russian occupation is the scariest thing, he says. We cannot let that happen. Jan Antoniuk is a a squad commander stationed on one of the main roads leading to Bakhmut. He is almost sure that Russian forces will eventually encircle the town. We are outnumbered and outgunned, he acknowledges. The Russians are fighting and unfortunately advancing one meter a day. All we can do by fighting with all our might is exact the highest price possible for each meter. The casualties on both sides are massive. Asked whether Bakhmut is worth such a high cost, he is blunt. That is like asking whether you want to be a slave or not, he says. 
It all comes down to a village, a town, a forest, or a bridge. Today and every day, they are invading our home. We have to protect it. From the Points of Progress section in the monitor, areas around the globe where good things are happening. From Costa Rica, Costa Rica has outlawed fishing of hammerhead sharks. Despite being protected since 2014 under the CITES Convention, the sharks have been caught and sold in the country for years. Local biologist Randall Arrows began raising awareness of shark finning in 2003. And since 2011, education campaigns in China have sharply lowered consumption of shark fins as a food of status and celebration. But demand has increased in other parts of Asia. With the great hammerhead shark alone, global populations have declined more than 80% over the past 70 years. The presidential decree comes 10 years after Costa Rica itself had requested sites protection of a hammerhead species. In 2018, the country established a hammerhead sanctuary in Gulf of Duce, a key gulf used by the sharks to reproduce. And in 2020, the Supreme Court struck down a former president's legalization of the shark trade. Given its mixed record on shark conservation, wildlife advocates have questioned Costa Rica's commitment, but are hopeful that February's decree has teeth. And from Canada, a new helmet makes outdoor sports safer for Sikh children. Ontario resident Tina Singh, who is Sikh and an occupational therapist, designed the helmet after her children started riding bicycles, and she realized that standard helmets didn't fit over the potkas worn by Sikh boys to cover their hair. Her design meets safety certifications for use with bicycles, skateboards, scooters, and inline skates, and is shaped to accommodate a potka. Ms. Singh wants to expand her designs to work for hockey players and remove barriers for athletes with other needs. Mozin Hasham, founder of the nonprofit Hockey for Youth based in Toronto, said, The creation of this type of helmet is now going to create an inclusive space. It's going to foster belonging. And that's it for the Christian Science Monitor for today. My name's Beth Devino. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.